Hello, everybody. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I'll be joined by my glorious co-host, Sarah Marshall, momentarily. Today, we're talking about the movie Widows with our friend Leslie Streeter. I'm very excited to get into that. But first, You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon at patreon.com slash you are good. You got bonus episodes over there. We had a center stage episode recently. Uh, We'll have another on grief and mourning. (laughs) Some of our favorite subjects coming up in the near future. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is also made possible with support from Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine and Nashville, Tennessee, and they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. And finally, do you have a You Are Good t-shirt? Do you have one of our Little Shop of Horrors inspired t-shirts? I We are in Los Angeles, Carolyn and I, uh, having some fun. And we uh, went to a place recently and someone was taken by the uh, Little Shop of Horror shirt. So you can impress Los Angelinos with your Little Shop of Horrors You Are Good shirt. You can impress just anyone who needs to be reminded that they are good with your Liz Climo logo design shirt. You can find all that in the show notes, of course. Okay, so... I'm so happy we have Leslie here. Uh, Leslie has written a book about grief. That's what we're going to talk about. I didn't know anything going into it. It is wonderful. Widows is a 2018 heist thriller film directed by Steve McQueen with a screenplay by Gillian Flynn and McQueen. Uh, we are, we're also doing a Gun Girl episode in the near future. So this is a Gillian Flynn extravaganza over the next handful of weeks. It's based upon the 1983 British television series of the same name. I love that this was based on a British television series. It stars Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, Elizabeth Debicki, Colin Farrell. I mean, there's just so many great people in this movie. Carrie Coons in it, Robert Duvall, Liam Neeson. We're just going to get into it. We're going to let the conversation speak for itself. Thank you so much for being here, everybody. We really appreciate you. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Elon Musk's Twitter at You Are Good Pod. Thanks for doing this with us. You are good. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed, or as I say in Chicago, hello. <laughs> <laughs> the person who is on the show today. Yes. I invited to talk about practical magic. Yes. And I forgot to let you know that. Which is surprising because neither of us ever forgets things. Steel traps. Organizing <laughs> with us is... A nightmare. <laughs> is a nightmare and it's funny, totally. So I felt terribly that this happened, but I reached out to the guest and was like, uh, what else can we cover? Mm-hmm. And... I'm so glad we fucked up Practical Magic because I didn't know this movie existed and I have been exposed to like (sighs) this might be my favorite movie I've seen this year and will see in a while. So Leslie, please tell us who you are and tell (laughs) us what we're watching. My name is Leslie Gray Streeter. I am a journalist. I'm currently a uh, columnist for a new digital awesome thing called the Baltimore Banner. I'm an author. 
I am a slow runner. I'm a law and order junkie. I'm a little embarrassed by the breadth of that. I'm a single mom, I'm a widow. And that brings us to this movie, Widows, which is not a sober discussion of widowhood. I mean, that's in there too, but it's a crime caper. It is Viola Davis doing all of the crying slapping, so much slapping in this movie. It's crazy. (laughs) And I really love it. I just, it's so weird. And it did not do as well as people would have thought it would have for a movie with Liam Neeson running around and stuff in it. But it was a really well done movie and it's really dark in a really good way. And I just, I thought that it would be fun. So you were like, Widows, what's that? I'm like, let's talk about (laughs) it. I am so happy it worked out this way and I can't wait to get big about it. I mean, this movie's about so many things. You know, it's like an art house thriller about how power works. Mm -hmm. And it's also an art house thriller about hugs and grief also, which is just fascinating. Which we never talk about. So no. And and Leslie, you have written about grief. I have. I wrote a book called Black Widow, a sad, funny journey through grief for people who normally avoid books with words like journey in the title, (laughs) because that's where I am. So many like people in grief spaces have gone, oh, you're one of those ironic people. I'm like, yes, meet me. (laughs) And I know the word journey works really well for a lot of people. And I don't, whatever your path through this terrible thing that happens to you, that's your path, man. And that's good. But I am so not a, let's just share our journey in a pink journal, Hmm. you know, and light some incense. I mean, incense is nice. It smells great, but I also want to drink bourbon. (laughs) And I'm also not one of those people who's like, I'm not a regular widow. I'm a cool widow. You know, I'm not (laughs) that person either. It just kind of how it all tumbled out. So, yes, I wrote this book about the first year of widowhood after my husband died now, seven years ago, which is stupid. Mm. Then I was 44 and he was 44 And uh, we had a little kid we were in process of adopting. And, you know, it's like a sitcom. I'm a black lady. He was a Jewish dude. Met in high school. Didn't start dating until 20 years later. We're hanging out in Florida. I was writing for the Palm Beach Post and like, you know, getting free dinners and going to concerts and getting free vacations because I was writing about them. Mm. Features journalism is is a scam, ladies and gentlemen. And (laughs) I'm here for it. So grief has become unwillingly, but now I'm okay with it, sort of a theme in in my life and things that I write about and talk about. So when we were talking, Practical Magic, I saw, you know, in the late 90s when I was single and being goofy. And so it didn't really resonate with me how both that and I think Must Love Dogs are movies about grief and, you know, Hmm. with the Christopher Plummer character in that movie. And so these were on my list. So when that didn't work out, I was like, what about something just straight up dark? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So, Sarah, tell us about Widows. (laughs) Take us on a journey. (laughs) Okay. So I first saw Widows in, I believe, the Palace Station Casino in Las Vegas. I might have the name wrong, but it was a casino where O.J. Simpson was arrested for stealing back his own Heisman Trophy, which I didn't realize that was where that was until I'd seen a bunch of movies there because that was where I used to go to the movies with our former guest and my favorite movie fan, Nicholas Russell. So I saw this movie there with him. And at the time I was like, this movie is going to take over America. And I think I have a real problem with thinking that my taste is what other people's taste is going to be like. Cause I guess expected this movie to like dominate the Oscars and stuff. And that didn't happen for some reason. And that's not, I don't like that. (laughs) 
But I similarly, like when I saw it, you know, for the first time, Alex, just I think I had your same reaction, which was just like, I've never quite seen a movie like this. And also it's, you know, playing to so many things that I know I love, especially in the heist genre. And it's a movie about women doing mm. stuff together, which we know is one of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. And so Big fave. the premise of Widows is that Liam Neeson, who at the time this movie was made, we didn't know had like spent a night going out on the town to do a hate crime, <laughs> crucially. <laughs> I Googled it. And I just want to tell you how the BBC categorized what happened. The BBC's headline is Liam Neeson in racism storm after admitting he wanted to kill a black man. Oh, God. In a racism storm. What the fuck? You would think that the racism storm would be like a storm of racism, but it appears to be a storm of people accusing you of being racist. Yes. I didn't understand why you don't know as Liam Neeson. That's a story that you just shut your mouth about because nobody knew that happened. That was a thing. And obviously he was saying, you know, it was wrong. He had understood that he had to grow and it wasn't all black people, whatever. Why are you telling the story? You got away with it, dude. You had a murderous thought. You were going to do a racism and then you didn't do a racism because you got over yourself. Why are you telling people about the racism you didn't do? Right. And I know his publicist is going, oh, God, no. Oh, my God. Right. And then you're like, all these stars doing all these press junkets, like at a certain point, do they start? just lapsing into what they should be telling their therapists and like how often does that happen but okay so Liam Neeson is an arch criminal who has a crew of guys who he does heists with he's apparently very meticulous he's been doing this for 30 years he's never fucked up and we open with the day when apparently he fucks up and the entire crew is killed the money is lost it burns because they've done a cash heist, which is why you should steal bearer bonds like our friends in Die Hard. (laughs) And (laughs) so we open seeing the aftermath of how the women that these men left behind are coping. And so we have Veronica, played by Viola Davis. We have Olivia, her wonderful little dog, who I think this movie is all really about. It is. (laughs) (laughs) Olivia solves a thing. We see it later. Olivia solves a thing. Olivia is like on the case. And where would we be without her? She's like Harriet the Spy. She is. (laughs) So we have Veronica. We have cute little dog Olivia. We have Alice, who is played by Elizabeth Debicki, who Alex, I was telling you, is very inspiring to me because she's a very tall bimbo in this movie and I always felt that I was too tall to be a bimbo aspirational but this is because these are the lies we tell ourselves you know like I'm not too tall to be a bimbo aspirational bimbo is my new company by the way right yes okay put that on Instagram I think you'll do well it could be like a monthly like a box that comes to like help you live your best bimbo life oh with like animal prints and stuff that is great I love that box yeah and lipsticks and like collagen yes, treatments, yes, yes. press-ons. Yeah, anyway, we'll figure it out later. We'll, we'll have a separate meeting about that. We'll workshop that, yes. Okay, so we have Alice, whose husband or boyfriend or whatever, Florek, was physically abusive and whose mother after the fact is like, well, time for you to go on seeking arrangements and have a high-class escort relationship with the kid from Witness, <laughs> who's an adult now but still looks like the kid from Witness. <laughs> The ears, dude, that blew my mind. That blew my mind. Like, ah! 
child renting the company of a woman. I don't like it. No. I just exclusively refer to him as a member of the Pussy Posse because I remember <laughs> when I learned about Leo's Pussy Posse and like what they the shenanigans they were up to, it blew my mind that Lucas Haas was a part of that. Also, Toby Maguire, right? Toby Maguire. He, <laughs> Lucas Haas has perpetually looked 11 years old and now he looks like a 50 year old, 11 year old, but he's looked 11 <laughs> years old his entire life. He has. <laughs> and like, no shame on Lucas Haas. You know, just go out there, live your best life. It's, it's whatever. I'm a tall bimbo. <laughs> and then we have Linda, played by Michelle Rodriguez, whose husband who's also now dead, everyone's dead, all the men are dead, has left her with a lot of gambling debts, which means her beautiful store has been taken away and all of her tiaras are getting repoed. They're not her tiaras, they're to sell. And then we also have Carrie Coon, who doesn't really do much until later. Can I tell you, by the way, that when I saw her, I kept going, why do I know her and why do I know her when she's snooty? And then I went, oh, yes. Gilded Age. Oh, sweet. Ah. She's also, so like The Leftovers is my favorite show. And in that show, she kind of plays the queen of grief Mm -hmm. because she's the person in the show who lost her Mm -hmm. entire family to this event Mm -hmm. that happened. And for the rest of the show, she's kind of reconciling that. So it it was interesting to see her here, but not play one of the grieving people. Yeah. Or one of the grieving, but like one of the less grieving in this game of things. Yeah. The exactly. least grieving. The less actively grieving. Yes. Yeah. And of course, <laughs> totally. to me, she's always going to be synonymous with being Ben Affleck's sister in Gone Girl who yells at him, which is a great role. Oh, I forgot about that connection. Yeah. She's so good. Yeah. So after the men die, Veronica calls all the women together and Alice and Linda come and Carrie, whose character's name I forget, doesn't come. And they meet in a sauna, which I love. And another woman comes in at one point and Veronica like scares her away by pouring a bunch of water onto the rocks because apparently all of the widows can like handle it being 300 degrees in there. (laughs) And so basically Veronica is like, all right, well, we're all screwed. And after Harry died, he left me the key to his safety deposit box, which he gave to me through our driver. And when we first saw the driver, I was like, (gasps) oh. I forgot Casey Affleck was in this movie. And then I realized it was not Casey Affleck, but it was still a fun moment to have. It's like Casey Affleck's dead. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's Garrett Dillahunt. He's interesting because he's, I think, totally a character actor, but he's also very good looking. And usually character actors like couldn't hack it as leading men. So like, what's his story? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So she gets the key to a safety deposit box from her driver, Bash, played by not Casey Affleck. <laughs> and in it, she finds instructions for the next job, which is to do a heist to steal $5 million out of a safe room. They've got blueprints. They don't know what building it's in. But once they figure that out, they're going to steal the $5 million that is detailed in the plan. And this is going to be useful, partly because they're screwed generally. Their husbands spent all of their money based on the idea that they would just be constantly doing new crimes. And also because the money that was burned was stolen from an alderman candidate for the 18th ward, Jamal, who is now putting pressure on the girls to get his money back. So they're like, well, okay, we'll get his $2 million and then I guess $3 million for us for expenses. And so they start planning the heist And then we also are introduced to Colin Farrell, who is running for alderman in opposition to Jamal. And the contest there is that Jamal is black. He would be the first black alderman for this ward. And Colin Farrell, 
has essentially inherited this position from his father, Robert Duvall, who obviously is playing a scary dad because he's Robert Duvall. That's what he does. <laughs> totally. The great Santini, always. And also, every time Robert Duvall plays a nefarious like political character, mm-hmm. the character represents Robert Duvall's actual politics, which uh, I find to be very funny. Like, What are his politics? He's like a Republican libertarian. Huh. I guess I'm not surprised. <laughs> Although he said, I guess, that he became an independent in 2014 because the Republican Party was a mess. But like, I wonder if he knows it or if he's just like, "Uh, whatever, I'm Robert Duvall, I'm cashing a check. But he's always a scary asshole and I love it. He's got to be 130 years old at this point because he was middle-aged in The Godfather. (laughs) (sighs) Ah, What a life. Okay, so Robert Duvall, scary old dad, Colin Farrell, running for alderman, apparently because he's being peer pressured by his whole family. And also because the money is nice and he's just the sort of figure of the mediocre white man at the center of this who everyone is connected to and sort of connected through him. And he thinks he's better than he is. Right. He thinks that he's a better person than his dad because he's not overtly racist or scary, but he really is these things and he's straight up connected to well, you'll say later some stupid stuff and so he wants to believe that somehow he's moving this criminal enterprise that is his family and chicago politics forward but really he's just it's the digital analog thing i am the analog gen xer Mm. you are the digital millennials and if we're good or bad has nothing to do with how what we do things digitally or not he's still a terrible person Mm -hmm. Right. And one of his initiatives is he's like, I'm doing a program. Oh, my God. What's it called? It's really embarrassing. It's got wow in it. M-wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, M-wow. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear it. M-wow. M-wow. Yeah. (laughs) And that basically the idea is like that he's financing and helping to support these local black business owners. And isn't it great? And then, of course, we realize that essentially he's a loan shark. Right. <laughs> yes. And it's like a protection scam and he's taking all their money. He's taking a cut. And as one of the women says, he does this and I get to pretend I own a business. <laughs> yeah. And that's what he's up to. And uh, probably a bunch of other dirty pies. But this this becomes relevant because we also at a certain point in a move that I really love, like so the girls are kind of planning their heist. Things are underway. They're getting the gear together. Alice has to buy a van at an auction. She has to get guns, which she goes about, I think, in a very smart way. She's the one who's kind of, I think, feels like the least capable because she didn't have to work. Her abusive husband took care of her. And now she just seems like everyone in her life is like pretty overbearing. And her life is predicated on the fact that she can't do anything. And now she has to buy guns for a heist. It's very empowering. And so Linda hires a babysitter to look after her kids while she goes to a heist planning meeting. And so the app or whatever that she's using connects her with Belle, who we establish when she has just come home after a very long day of working and her mom is watching her daughter. And then she has to leave immediately and like run out the door and like sprint to get on the bus. So we're like, oh, Belle's a pretty good runner. Which is important later. Especially since we learned that Alice can't drive. So basically the way it boils down is that Alice who is seeing a big, tall building architect guy, Lucas Haas, the 50-year-old, 11-year-old, he figures out that the blueprints that they have are for the building where Colin Farrell is running his campaign out of and where the scary old Robert Duvall man lives. And so Veronica goes to the house to case it and also gets in there by arranging to have a meeting with Colin Farrell where she's like, listen, we're being extorted 
by your opponent in this race. So that seems to concern you. Maybe you could help us out. And he's like, no. And we also learn around this time that Liam Neeson isn't really dead. He's shacked up with Carrie Coon. He faked his death and killed all the rest of the guys in his crew and stole the $2 million from Jamal to give it to Colin Farrell. <laughs> and our the hero of this reveal is who? Our friend, the dog. Our friend, <laughs> Olivia. Yeah, and we realized that Liam Neeson is alive when Veronica brings Olivia over to his new girlfriend, Carrie's house, and Olivia starts scratching at the door, and we see Liam Neeson's flask, and then Veronica books it because she's planning a heist and needs to have this confrontation at another date, I assume. And we also learn as well that Veronica and Harry had a son who died pretty recently because he was murdered by the police when he was on the phone with his father when they pulled him over and that some of their fighting has involved her saying that if he hadn't married her, then their son would still be alive. And so essentially he has picked up and found a new white girlfriend and he has a new white baby who presumably will not be murdered by the police. And that's his plan. It's not a good plan. <laughs> no, but so many of Liam's aren't. So <laughs> they find all this out. The night of the heist comes. They have planned it to the night of the Alderman debate, which is apparently carried on the radio. And they have been practicing. One of the things I love that they do is figure out how much $5 million weighs and then replicate that with Tupperwares full of potting soil and then run around with them, which I just feel like that's the kind of thing that women think of. <laughs> and so they go, they do the heist, they break into the Alderman house. Unfortunately, Robert Duvall is there and he decides that he's at 150 years old, is going to come out and deliver some justice. He shoots Alice and then Veronica shoots him and they escape and then Jamal's brother, who I haven't mentioned before, but who is his heavy. And in a, also, Alex, you texted me excitedly today that Benny from The Mummy is in this movie and we watched Jamal's brother fuck up Benny. Yeah, so. really fuck up Benny. Oh, Just like yeah. Yeah. Benny gets fucked up. So Jamal's brother takes the van that the girls have put the money in that they've just stolen. He's escaping with it. They ram him in the back. They take the money back. They drop Alice at the hospital. Linda is there to take care of her. It's the only really like British move in this movie or where you're like, oh, this is directed by a British director, Sir Steve McQueen, where they're like, take her to the hospital. It'll be good. <laughs> it's just like adventures and babysitting. Veronica goes back to Harry's safe house and who should be there but Harry. And they have a confrontation. And we think that he is going to shoot her. And we think that he has shot her, but she has shot him. And so she has to take out Harry. And that's what she does because Veronica handles shit. And then end of the movie, they have their money. Veronica donates a bunch to rebuild a library to be named after her son. I know I'm forgetting. I have to be forgetting stuff. But to me, the final beat, I mean, I know that it's literally the last thing that happens. But to me, it's also kind of ties everything up is that Veronica, who has been very businessy and on top of things and sort of not tolerating fools this whole time and who is there's been a lot of friction between her and Alice for that reason sees Alice in a diner and says hi 
and smiles for the first time. And smiles for the first time. For the first time in the entire movie. Right. Yeah. The end. The thing I wanted to say earlier, and it's a beautiful description. The thing I wanted to say earlier was uh, Daniel Kaluuya. Is that yes. the uh, actor's name? Yes. I love him in everything. Everything. Mm-hmm. And even though he was he was a monster in this movie. like monster. Like an absolute brutal monster and i still was like i love every time he's on screen i love when he's putting a knife into benny's paralyzed legs i love (laughs) every single thing about him he's great every time he's on screen in any situation there's a moment where you establish his monsterhood where monstership monsterness whatever yeah monstrosity okay where he is listening to this guy who's fucked up he's listening to him rap they're like you should rap and they're in this gym and he's like yeah that's right and he's not and he's into it yeah and the guy's like i'm impressing him he goes yeah i'm just gonna shoot you and he shoots him and he walks off and his body's there bleeding to death and the thing is like goodbye and everyone's like, oh shit, maybe he doesn't rap well. It's wild. Everyone in this movie is great. Everything in this movie is great. It's about grief. It's about power. I love movies about finding like legit, like there's the whole storyline with these guys who are trying to somehow become legitimate, but are still yes. have feet in, in villainy. And that's like, like, I love everything that's going on. So Leslie, could you start us off by telling us like why this appealed and what this speaks to for you first of all it's like did you guys watch how to get away with murder no no okay so the thing about the character that viola davis played in that is that she's a crazy person annalise keating she's the this professor of law and she has this thing and everything she does is shady and i think everyone involved with her does actual murders and she's implicated in them all in some way but what I loved about both that character about Veronica and about a lot of people that Viola Davis plays is that these are characters who don't care if they're nice or not. Mm. And that is a thing that is not afforded a lot to female characters, mm. particularly characters of a certain age, particularly women of color, where Veronica is, a, is not a nice person. She's had this great life knowing that her husband was a criminal. You know, she was comfortable with that. She was comfortable with it. So she doesn't have a moral high ground, even though she wants to see herself as different and elevated above the other women who have lost their husbands because they think their husbands all died in a heist. They're all criminals. They're all widowed by a criminal enterprise. But she has been able to see herself in a different way. And I think that Viola Davis has such an amazing command of these characters that are not asking to be liked. But why did she invent Theranos and make cancer patients think they didn't have cancer? Because someone was mean to her when she was young. They don't care about that shit. They're like, she's crazy. And it's what it is. And and the thing about Annalise Keating is that they, they say, okay, the character you find out is a abuse survivor. And then, so yeah, she's been a victim a lot, but she's also, also a crazy person. And she's lost her child. A lot of things happen. But also some stuff happened. So it says this is why she did it. It doesn't say this absolves her of the things she's done. Mm-hmm. And I think that Veronica, I love the fact that we don't know anything about these women a lot. We don't know how Harry and Ronnie met. We don't know how this beautiful, smart woman met this like Irish dude who robs people for 30. He's a career robber person. We don't know how that happened. And we learned a little about, you know, that Michelle Rodriguez's character met this guy whose mother claimed he was on his way to Harvard or some shit. And then she tempted him away and it's all her fault, which is bullshit because he was gambling all her money away. So 
none of these people have really super good backgrounds, but the movie doesn't try to absolve them. It says mm-hmm. you were in the situation, go. And women are not usually given the leeway to be complicated. Mm. So of course these women and widows are angry and Veronica is angry and she's not nice. And there's a moment where they're waiting to meet Harry's widow and she walks in and Michelle Rodriguez's character, Linda says, you're Harry's wife. Mm. I mean, she's probably expecting Carrie Coon, but she's not expecting Mm. this black woman who's regal and whatever. So she's like, what? So all of this is like, they maybe think she's going to be maternal or may maybe think she's going to be commiserating with them. She's like, fuck it. Your husband died. My husband died. Let's do this thing. Do you want to die? Y'all want to die. And so I loved that because it was incredibly unapologetic. When I first came to the movie, like I said, I too was the widow in a interracial marriage. And so when the movie first came out, I just heard widows, Viola Davis, Liam Neeson. I go, ooh, also Liam Neeson figures into the pre-runner up to the first date with my husband because we were supposed to go to the movie, supposed to go see Taken, and we were hanging out as friends because we'd been reunited after 20 years, and he asked me to go see Taken, and he was planning to ask me out out that day. And I blew him off because I was watching Gifted Hands the Ben Carson story on TNT. And I go, shit, I'm late. So I called Scott and I go, I'm late. He goes, that's okay, I'll wait for you. So we go to see Taken and then he asked me out and then we got married. Like not that day, but eventually. So Liam Neeson, <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, it's a sign. So I see this movie I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, this is bananas. This is, and it, it was about, we said all the themes. It was about grief. Mm. It was about class and race and power and parenthood, both that Liam Neeson's character, you know, loses his child and has this moment where he thinks, well, if I just have a white family, this won't happen. So this is good. That's how I grieve. And Robert Duvall's character is a monster who's like, my parenthood means I gave you all the financial tools I need to save to give you. Also, I'll tell you every minute of the day that you're incompetent and, and stupid. And Colin Farrell is, and I will tell you that I wish you were dead all of the time. Right. And so it's it's about so many things. And yes, the whole subject of legitimacy of the alderman and his brother saying, all we have to do to be legit is win this election. Of course, we're going to then blackmail and threaten a widow <laughs> for money because, oh, wait, are you not supposed to do that? Is that not what you do? So there's so many themes. I've been to Chicago just one or two times, so I'm not immersed in it, but I know a lot of it just from knowing people from there and I understand that it's the politics are crazy and that it's a would be a city like Baltimore where I live which would be rife for you know stories about political corruption and how racism and classism and family legacies and dynasties you know all of it it's a, it was probably about too many things and it really should have been mm. like a limited series that was like six episodes long to get all of those things in mm. I think maybe four well, to, to that point, I can't believe how tidily, like usually if a movie tries to touch all this stuff, you're like, ah, oh, fuck, like you didn't give enough breathing room mm-hmm. to a lot of this stuff. But I was surprised at how well every time they touched on something that represented something that happens, like it felt complete. Yes. There's like just enough there for you to be like, oh, I can see how these things are ultimately connected, but it doesn't feel like... Kubrickian where you're like this is like a grand puzzle it was just like these are just all the things that happen in life <laughs> you know I, I said to you earlier Alex I wish that I had known more about Bell I thought that anytime mm. you have Cynthia Erivo in your movie she and mm. her her body is so 
nuts because everyone talks about Viola Davis's arms. There's a scene where Belle is casing the joint and she's running. She's just, oh, I'm just a runner with an impeccable body, you know, <laughs> running around. And I'm going, how does she do that? And one of the only things that took me out of it and go, oh, these are movie stars. Because Elizabeth Debicki, I completely bought as this aspirational bimbo tacky girl. Because just everything about her, about the way she looked and stuff. But every once in a while you look at Vela Davis, you understand that Ronnie probably did have a trainer because she's rich. But Belle is not. And you go, where did that CrossFit body come from? CrossFit's $130 a month, ma'am. <laughs> I loved so much the Elizabeth Debicki character. I loved Alice a whole lot. Like typically... Viola Davis, you were saying earlier, like she has the freedom to be kind of mean and like not necessarily like she's not polite. She's not like super nice. And usually like a black woman in a movie like this, their responsibility would be to like kind of like be comfort, a comforting mm. presence or like a mothering presence. Yes. And Alice's character, who's not inherently immediately likable for not not likable, but not likable. Like she becomes that hmm. through a lot a lot of the movie. Like she recognizes yes. the pain that's being gone through. Like, and even though she doesn't necessarily have it, because like she's kind of just like, I'm shit out of luck, but like my abuser's dead. But she's like, I recognize your pain in this situation. And she she makes that space for Ronnie a lot of the time with the other women. That's a really beautiful point. There's a the moment where Michelle Rodriguez brings Belle in. And Ronnie's immediate reaction is to go, mm. who are you? Get the fuck yeah, out. And Belle's that. like, fuck, you all have to be here. And Ronnie is going to fuck it up just because her initial reaction to everything is, let's just me be a bitch about this. You know, that's kind of what I do. Mm. And uh, that's what I'm known for. And I love their interplay because also, obviously, Belle is not a character who is a widow of the guys in the heist. So these other three women know of each other, know at least of each other's husbands. So there's some connection there. And I initially thought that the real emotional connection was going to be between her and Michelle Rodriguez's character, between her and Linda. Mm. But really, it was with Alice and maybe... She's and maybe that's more what I would have wanted to know because we don't know anything about Ronnie's background mm -hmm. other than she's married to this man. So we don't know if she was from a poor background and she sees herself in Alice in some way or if Alice pisses her off because Alice kind of is like, oh, I'm just this pretty balloon that just kind of floats from place to place. And, you know, I will say this as a mother of an eight year old. Sometimes my decision fatigue is already like eight steps ahead of where he is, where he's, I know he's going to be bullshit about bedtime. I'm like, listen, I'm going to cut you off with the things you have to do before you go to bed. Let's just do it, you know? And it's like, I'm not even going to let him be clever about it because I'm just tired. And I mm -hmm. saw that in Ronnie where she's like, I know this is going to be bullshit. So can we just get to the end? Of it, So there was no feelings about our husbands involved. It was like, we have money to get or they're going to kill us. Mm -hmm. I love the scene where Belle comes in and Belle says to Ronnie, you really need to watch how you talk to me, which because yes. like she realizes the cards that she holds in the case. But you know, what just struck me is like Belle is Winston from Ghostbusters <laughs> because like these three have their mm -hmm. dynamic. And then like Belle comes in later and is literally just it's not the sole role, but like is literally as yep. their driver, which is kind of like the, the only sad thing about Ghostbusters in retrospect is like Winston should have gotten a lot more play in that movie. There's a lot going on with Winston, but what I've always found very confusing, they don't frame it as if they have a bunch of job applicants and he's one of them. They frame it as if he's the only person who it occurred to to apply to be a Ghostbuster. <laughs> That's just weird. 
<laughs> Leslie, can I ask you, you your take on on some of the things that happen in the movie, specifically from a, a grief and grieving perspective? Yes. And and I want to set it up by way of my one of my favorite scenes in this movie. Michelle Rodriguez's character goes to find out mm-hmm. who an architect is mm. so that she can get the blueprints for the building that they're looking for. And she shows up to this guy's house and it turns out that she has not factored in the fact that like the guy she's talking to, the architect is dead. His yes. life is dead. And they both sit down and she it hit, like the wave of grief hits her because her husband has just died. His wife died four months ago. They both sit down. They console each other. It falls into some like quick making out. And then she's like, I need to get out of here. And I love how fucking yeah. messy that scene is. Can I tell you a story I've never told anybody? Yes. Of course you can. (laughs) Here's a story. Okay, so it wasn't right after, but about three, maybe two and a half years after my husband died, I was reconnected with a guy that I kind of dated years before when I was in my early 30s. And he turned out to also be widowed. His partner of many years had died. And it was messy. It was never anything official. It was a couple of like messy makeout hangouts, nothing super serious. And then it kind of just devolved when it was clear that it was, ne- I never didn't never really wanted a, a relationship, but I was like, we can kind of hang out, but he just kind of wanted to like hook up. And I was like, I'm not interested in that, you know, but we bonded on being people who understood that loss, that mm. moment that was acted so well And it wasn't even just that it was sexual. Mm -hmm. It was the touch of a person who had been afraid to be at all open to any sort of intimacy. She'd had two weeks. He'd had four months. The relief of their shared experience, which was a terrible experience, but the wave of that just came over them. They forgot how it felt to feel that way. Mm. And I understood that. Mm. He understands immediately that she's there under false pretenses, right? So already being there, if she's in a right mind, she goes, never mind, I'm out, right? But she sits on a couch and she engages them as a human being because at that moment, her humanity is so stripped and she's so tired and she's so damn sad that she risks that to connect to the other human being who might understand that. Yeah, I have not been in a relationship with a person but I've been co-fucked up with a person, basically. It's like, you know, it's like this person's fucked up in a specific way about a specific thing. I fucked up about a specific way and a specific thing. And we're just like next to each other for a period of time throughout that. And that scene was, I was like, oh, what a beautiful scene. I'm glad that they worked this into this movie. It was so beautiful. And I haven't researched this, but I wonder if there was a grieving or widowed person in that room because someone Mm. understood that and they they did it in a way that was not gross or gratuitous. They did it in a way that was these are two human beings who mm-hmm. had a loss, who are lost. And there was this release that was very natural. And I, I understood that. I mean, I think that I understood there's so much grief in this mm-hmm. movie. There's Elizabeth Debicki's character going, I never, I don't, you don't even get the sense that she even really liked her husband. You know, oh, he yeah. was terrible to her. Mm-hmm. But he was her connection to life. He supported her and he was the person that gave her legitimacy in this world. Even her own mother didn't give her on her own. Mm -hmm. And Viola Davis's thing, I thought it was so interesting that so many of the scenes they have together in flashback have no words. Did you notice that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they're silent. 
where they're they're kissing or they're like very intimately like nuzzling each other in bed or they're doing shots or whatever and they're just together in this way that has no words and the angry flashbacks are the ones that have words that's yeah that's incredible I also I love to the, to to all of what's about Liam Neeson that this movie opens on two people over fifty, one person over sixty making out. Big fan of that on yeah. this show. <laughs> yeah. Can I tell you this because I'm fifty, mm-hmm. right? I'm a fifty year old woman, mm-hmm. and I understand like right now on the terrible dating apps, I either get seventy year olds and God bless you, but no, yeah. or like thirty five year olds <laughs> are like, where are you right now? Can we smash? And like. No, Hmm. I I have no interest. I can't do it anymore. They're cute, but so what? (laughs) They have so much energy. So much energy to be like, and now do you need a ride home? Do you need like an Uber? Can I get you an Uber? How's your credit? What's happening? Yeah. Do you need me to give you an Uber code? (laughs) I don't want to do it, dude. Yeah. The fact that they were unabashed in the absolute fucking sexiness of these like 50 and 60 year old hot ass people that he's Mm. Irish and she's this dark skinned black woman and they're just hot as fuck. It was so great and it, it's going to end terribly because it's a steve mcqueen movie so something fucked is going to happen totally. but I, I enjoyed those moments where they were so intimate there's a moment where they're like nuzzling each other's noses and like well if it is that isn't the sexiest right. thing in the world yeah hmm. also kind of a callback to heathers i also want to take a moment just to say how amazing steve mcqueen is and i feel like i was introduced to his work when i took a class in grad school where we watched hunger about the Oh, wow. IRA prison hunger strike. And these are very different movies from each other, but you can definitely see the connective tissue. And just, I mean, Alex, you and Mm. I were just talking, we talked about Heather's about how one of the things that maybe makes that movie work is that that, like the whole thing is very arch and funny. And then it's peppered with these little moments of human pain and human reaction and how I feel Mm. like this movie works too, because it's just so interested in watching people and showing us what they're going through. And I feel like so much storytelling is accomplished when people just shut up for a minute. Like Mm -hmm. I love the scene where Veronica is taking her dog to the dog boarding place right before the big job. Because my read of that (laughs) is like, okay, they're going to take care of you tonight. And also maybe if I don't make it, then things will work out for you. And like, that's, I love that. Mm -hmm. It's just so good. That's who she has. And we can read all that because we know her. We know this dog. We've been watching them together this whole time. Like, we don't have to be told anything. We just get to watch her with the dog. And the dog acting was amazing. I'm not being physicist. That dog was amazing. That dog. Oh, that scene where the dude comes in and is holding the dog. That the the menace of the scene doing a reverse silence of the lambs yes where that dude he's coming in and basically like you owe me money but we don't know that that's where it's going yet and he comes in and this is where we're, we're introduced to the fact that like he has menace in him too it all occurs with the dog in his hands and there's like a jarring scene that does not result in a dog death I want to let people know because people can't handle that yeah that, that dog does some great work yeah, and if I can say you'd ask me before one of the things I was drawn to this movie, this movie is very black in a very Mm. specific way. A lot of times when people say that a thing is black, they go, oh, it's power. It's, it's, you know, boys in the hood. It's no, it's not that at all. And it's black in the way that I think of black because I was raised in Baltimore, which is a very black city where there's no shorthand 
about take a minute to understand middle class or or rich black people. They just go, this is what it is. And they don't spend a lot of time explaining it or holding your hand or going, we know you're sh- we're shocked too. They just, it is what it is. And I appreciated it because I understand if you're going to do a story, it's like The Wire. If you're doing a story, like a show like The Wire, you have to understand that there is corruption and all echelons of society, and it's many different races. It's not a movie about a black person who just happens to be the only powerful person because almost everyone in this movie with any power was black. And they're on, in varying shades of legitimacy, you know? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that this movie contains so much that I would love for us to just kind of do a lightning round and talk about things that we enjoyed because there's so much happening that isn't directly connected to plot necessarily. And Alex, I know you wanted to talk about Alice getting the guns. So maybe we can start with that. Yeah. I, so I love like Alice's task is to get guns. And she's like, where am I supposed to get them? And Ronnie's answer is this is America, which uh-huh. I loved so much. Also, she has the Bernie Mac job. She has to get a van as well. Yes, 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 totally. And she she ends up at a gun show. I've been to many gun shows in my life. And it mm-hmm. that was a that was exactly a gun show. Like there was no mm-hmm. that was a gun show. Like she was at this place where it's like you just see a bunch of people who largely look like me <laughs> trading guns in in a sometimes questionably legal fashion. So I've never been to a gun show, which is surprising. It's like a convention. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So is it like when you go to like a brony convention or anything yeah. else where it's just a bunch of tables with wares on them, but exactly. instead of trading cards, it's guns. Yeah. Okay. And like, and there you're like often you're supposed to fill out paperwork and there's often like cash sales and stuff. And like mm. that happens a lot of the time. So she has to go and she pretends as if she is a mail order bride because she's not quite sure the guns that she's looking for. And she like talks to a lady who seems like she's from my hometown <laughs> And it's like, I need you to get me these guns. I need to feel safe in the house. I need three guns. And the lady's like, that's a lot of firepower. And she's like, I want one in each of the rooms. And the lady's little, this is such a good scene. The lady's little girl says to the lady, mom, you always said a gun is a girl's best friend. And so that encourages her basically to like do the sales transactions for Alice. I love that scene so much Mm -hmm. a lot about it is real to the point where it's like they must have a widow on the staff they must have had someone who's gone to some gun shows because it was like very very real i loved it the specificity and you said that and i had thought about when i saw it again this afternoon was yes that whoever was writing this movie you had so many obviously different people who had different experiences because i don't know anything about gun shows that's how i imagine gun shows are and that you validated that that is the gun show experience Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was really awesome. Sarah, what's a scene that you love? I love the scene where Alice, who I clearly love, he's having sex with a little fella. (laughs) (laughs) The short Lucas King. (laughs) Yeah, he was kind of funny looking. And somebody rings the doorbell. And she's like, that's my mom. Get off. Get your clothes on. And he's like, you're kidding. She's like, no. And I have like a weird, you know, history of kind of overbearing stuff with my mom. And I cannot believe I'm telling the story. One time in college, okay, grad school, when I was having sex with a little fella, (laughs) my mom called and I was like, I have been trained that if my mom calls and I don't answer, then she will assume I'm dead. So we have to stop having oh, sex no. right now so I can answer this phone call. And I was 23, which is just like, 
I remember like realizing that years later, like after I had broken up with the little fella, but we were like still being friends. And I was like, remember when that happened? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, I'm sorry. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And then it turns out to be Veronica who's coming over instead. But just again, like this is a character moment. And maybe this is projection because I'm a tall bimbo with a weird (laughs) relationship with my parents. But like, I just felt that I was like, oh, like if you were going to like push someone off of you in the middle of sex because you're afraid that your mom has come over. (laughs) And your mom's very weird expectations and lack of belief in you in one way or another is driving how you're acting in every moment. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Leslie, what's what's yours? You know, I think for me, it's the scene where uh, Veronica goes to the headquarters. Well, actually, no, there's two things because it's a callback. She's sitting in the lobby outside of Robert Duvall's office where he and Colin Farrell are just like yelling at each other. She's there on the frost pretenses. She's there because she used to be with the teachers union and that's her <laughs> in. And she's on this, the couch next to Robert Duvall's caretaker who doesn't have very many lines at all, but she looks over most of it. Like, I know he's terrible, whatever. So she's kind of looking at Veronica like, yeah, I understand. So when they come back later to do the heist and they go upstairs and the woman lives there and they she opens the door in her nightgown, like, what's happening? And they point the gun at her. She's like, never mind. And she doesn't try to stop it. <laughs> She doesn't try to call the police. She's like, not my thing. They gonna kill Robert Duvall. Not about my ass. Nope. And and not that she doesn't care about him as a human, but she's like, I've made a decision. I've been involved with these shady people for a very long time. And the split second decision she makes is, yeah, I'm good. And she just closes the door. (laughs) This is totally the clerk's debate. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, it's like every Western where like the thing starts happening and like the bartender closes up the bar and the piano player leaves and chicks are like, we're not going to be around for this shit. She's like, nope, sorry. I loved it. Because that actress gets such a great face and eye acting thing where she's like, yeah, I'm good. Sorry, you're on your own pops. Hope it works out for you. Also, like, maybe you should have paid me for if I was supposed to protect you from armed robbers. I love when they're like, when they're like, is she going to call the cops? And someone's like, she's not that stupid. Like, I love that (laughs) so, so much. One of the refreshing things about this movie is that everybody involved is a criminal. Mm. Even the little fella, because he's got some shadiness, too. Mm -hmm. There's everybody in this movie has an issue where they have benefited greatly from some illegal activities. So the lack of judgment on many of these characters' parts, once they figure out that they're all the same, is really refreshing. And it's not like Ocean's 8 or 7 or whatever that terrible movie was where everyone was pretty ocean 7-eleven <laughs> but like the girl one where they were oh, all the ocean's like, eight yeah, yeah yeah because my sister kept saying but they're all criminals they're all criminals and it's like we're supposed yes they're stylish and they're pretty but the stakes were and were criminals there weren't like a whole lot of stakes other than mindy kaling's board wants to rent a doesn't live at home anymore and it just but they really are criminals though right and this they've all accepted that they are they're not slick about it you're not supposed to look at them and go, I'd love to live in that house. You're like, and also could get shot at any moment. Yeah. 
We know that Liam Neeson is a father in this movie. There are other fathers throughout. Oh, and Robert Duvall, also the father. Who, Sarah, kick us off, is the daddy? It's obviously Olivia. Yeah, totally. <laughs> a little fluffy dog. She just holds this whole movie together. And by the way, this screenplay was co-written by Steve McQueen, and I forget if it's Gillian or Gillian Flynn, but you know, yes. it's Gone Girl. Gone Girl, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's so rare to see a movie. I think we kind of talk about this a lot where like, you love it, but you don't come out with a lot of notes. I think it's very weird to be like, I loved it and I have no notes. <laughs> and I think it's just very impressive to be able to tell a story like you wouldn't think it would be that hard, but it is. And so, you know, it's Olivia and it's also whoever's idea it was to put Olivia in there. I don't know whose idea that was or if it was multiple people's idea, but like this is how you tell a story. And this is how you arrange a story around a little white fluffy dog. And I love that for us. Mine is, I mean, I think it's Ronnie in a lot of ways, but Ronnie, mm -hmm. like a dad, thinks that Ronnie has everything under control and does not necessarily have everything under control. And I like the like my two dads relationship that evolves between Ronnie and Alice. I think Alice ends mm -hmm. up having become accidentally becoming a dad by way of being like, I'm just not going to take anyone shit anymore. Like, that's my whole thing now. I love that a lot. I like the interplay between them. Between the two of them, they make a whole dad. And I I, I appreciate that. <laughs> what What is yours, Leslie? I think that Ronnie is clearly the dad, but I think it's funny that all of the men in the movie think they're the dad, that they all think they're in control. They think they're controlling these women and they're going to threaten them and their dogs are going to kill poor Bash and F up Benny and do all this stuff. And so they think they're the daddy. They think they're controlling this thing and they have no clue about grief and vengeance and poverty and losing all your shit because they're thinking oh we don't care how you get the money she's like wait a minute rather than just like let you run over me and try to figure out how to, to sell all my stuff instead i'm just going to like be a criminal back to you thank you sir i am now a criminal and they could not have conceived a reality in which that is how they dealt with it. So she is clearly the daddy, but it's also funny because these other people think that they're in control. I had not paid a lot of attention to the Pirates of the Caribbean series a lot. I saw the first one, but I saw this haunting because I, I think I saw the first or second one and then I like pieced out, but there was the, the, the last one hmm. where there's that guy who was the villain the whole time, mm -hmm. really terrible, haunting, beautiful scene where his boat is being blown up. Do you not know see he's walking down the plank and the parts of the ship are literally being blown from under his hands and under his feet and not until he literally gets blown up does it really occur to him and dawn in him that he is lost because he's just in the state now like no no i am the daddy i am in charge i am the guy and he's literally about to die the boat is literally being blown up from under him it doesn't really occur to him he looks into the camera like oh fuck and that moment reminded me of the guys in this movie the robert duvall's character thinks fine i'll just shoot you it's like no fucker i'm gonna kill you i mean I, you can't just shoot my girl i have to kill you now because they think that he's like no inwards can't be the mayor and this person can't whatever and you can't whatever and it's just like he's this old dude who's literally he tells colin farrell <laughs> I can kick your ass. I can do it. I because like, and he's a thousand and three years old, <laughs> and still thinks he's in charge. 
So that's clearly Ronnie, but it's ironic that all the men think that they are and they're not. And that's why it's really more <laughs> delicious because they're either dead or poor. Colin Farrell's character wins, they say in the voiceover, oh, he's you know won with the sympathy vote when his father got killed. And the pastor who was shady is like, yes, we're praying for him. He's doing really well. We hope everything goes well in his life. It's like, ah. Oh, my God. Leslie, this has been a joy Thank you so much for doing it. Can you just remind people how to find you if they want to know more? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Leslie Streeter. You can find me on Instagram at Leslie Gray Streeter. You can find me on my Substack. It's uh, who knows where that might lead because it's a credit house uh, reference because I am old and very proud of that. I am now, again, a columnist for the Baltimore Banner. And we're going to be launching later this year. We have a series of newsletters. I wrote one about dating. I interviewed Neve Shulman. And so I'm everywhere. I'm mostly likely on Twitter, like saying bad things about people. So yes. <laughs> thank you so much, Leslie. We really appreciate it. You guys it. are awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks to Leslie for joining us. We are eternally grateful. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, who produces our episodes, who is our music director, who is fabulous. You can uh, find links to Carolyn's music and professional goings-on <laughs> in the show notes. Thank you to Miranda Zickler, who edits our episodes. We appreciate everything you do, Miranda. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for the beats that make the transitions in the show sound so sweet. You can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash youaregood, where you'll find bonus episodes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at youaregoodpod. I think that's all you need to know for right now. Thank you for being here with us. You are good. <laughs>